0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Judge Glock. He's a contributing editor of City Journal, and he's the senior director of policy research at the Cicero Institute. Judge lives in Austin, Texas, and he researches budgetary reform, housing, homelessness, and other issues. His writing has been featured in Politico, uh, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, in addition to the great work he's been doing for City Journal. His latest essay for the magazine, Subsidizing Addiction, appears in our summer issue, and it's about how publicly funded welfare pro- programs uh, have incentivized drug use and other antisocial forms of behavior. On another note, Judge has been a critic of the recently passed Chips and Science Act, and um, having earlier criticized the legislation in a City Journal article, which we published in the spring. Anyway, Judge, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me on, Brian.
0: Uh, so in the 90s, as you recount in your essay in the issue, uh, Congress ended a federal program that classified drug and alcohol dependence as a disability. disqualified addicts to receive welfare payments. Addiction specialists, Americans generally observed that the program really did incentivize uh, uh, addiction. Uh, yet, b- bureaucrats and welfare advocates have since worked to restore substance abuse as a condition for receiving welfare payments. So today, you know benefits programs uh, continue to reward drug use. So I wonder if you can describe the origins of this uh, phenomenon, the subsidizing of addiction, and some of the current taxpayer-funded programs uh, that are that are doing this. And you know, what's what's the danger in classifying drug abuse as a as a kind of disability?
1: Yes. Yeah, so back in in 1972, uh, under the Nixon administration, they they created a new program called SSI, Supplemental Security Income. It was supposed to sort of combine a bunch of the disability programs for the, the poor and the impoverished into one central place. And as part of that debate, uh, uh, Hugh Carey, Representative Hugh Carey, later, of course, governor of New York, wanted to include addiction as a type of disability, just like if you had injured your arm or if you had uh, a spinal problem or whatever it was, he wanted to classify addiction to drugs and alcohol as a disability like any other. Uh, largely because New York state had a then unique program giving some of its own addicts a disability. And he wanted to get them off the local or state roles and onto these federal roles. And he succeeded in 1972. They included addiction, drug and alcohol as a disability under the assumption this is an illness like any other. Uh, But what they ignored is that addiction, even though of course it has psychological and even neurological roots has to involve people making choices about whether or not to do drugs and alcohol and providing people funds for abusing drugs and alcohol will, of course, incentivize more than that. It was the worst possible incentive you could imagine that telling somebody, well, as long as you're addicted to drugs, we will give you a disability payment every two weeks or every month. And if you get clean, you get yourself together, well, then you're no longer disabled. We cut off your checks uh, and there was lots of good evidence uh, leading up to the repeal of this uh, this program in 1996 that that's exactly what it was doing. It was encouraging many people to abuse more drugs and alcohol uh, in order to continue to stay on this disability program. And uh, when the sort of nature of this program came to light, sort of bipartisan coalition Congress finally ended it in 1996, as I said, and... Since then, a lot of advocates, a lot of people in the bureaucracy and elsewhere have tried to restore addiction as another way to create new benefits or get welfare payments. And uh, as I point in the piece, they've largely succeeded.
0: Yeah, how how is that working? Uh, how are they doing a kind of end run around, um, you know, the, the the fact that there isn't a federal law here?
1: Well, so a, a bunch of the the federal programs... Uh, they now have what they have called outreach sections to them. It's uh, uh, places like SAMHSA, which deals with mental health, health and substance abuse. They have a special SSI SSDI uh, outreach program that tries to encourage people, specifically what they call substance use disorders, uh, to get on welfare or disability. And they say, "Why well, we can't technically claim that you uh, uh, are getting disability purely because of your addiction." you can, uh, because of your addiction, get access to these outreach programs that will then try to get you under another addiction program, most often mental health. Uh, And there's some places such as, uh, like uh, I mentioned in the article, the Veterans Administration, which uh, also once had an addiction disability program, but which Congress repealed again in the 1990s, which now declares, well, if you say have a primary disability of say, nerve pain and that nerve pain then causes you to drink or to abuse drugs then you should get disability payments for that what they call secondary disability and uh as i also point out probably the biggest source of these programs is in contemporary homelessness policy where even some of the laws kind of apparently snuck in sub rosa without congress being aware have included addiction explicitly as a route to benefits and especially to housing
0: Yeah, I I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on the, um, you know, that area. You you write in the essay that there's these two prevailing public assistance models, so housing first and then harm reduction, uh, which are worsening the government's encouragement of drug use, and they're contributing what you describe uh, as the government basically helping homeless people to kill themselves on the public dime. So, you know, both models are currently endorsed by uh, the national government. They become standard procedure for many agencies and organizations that are providing homelessness services across the country. So, you know, ha- how exactly do these policies contribute to um this this elevated drug use and overdose rate, rates among the homeless? Yes,
1: yeah, so When the federal government began reorganizing their homeless programs in 2009, under what it was called, the the HEARTH Act, uh, they said our homeless programs should focus on this new housing first model, which housing first means giving permanent homes, either free or very heavily subsidized, to chronically homeless individuals, those on the streets for at least a year and with a disability. And unlike the laws about Social Security or disability or other programs, this one included explicit explicit substance use disorder as a disability. And that's sort of dangerous enough when you're telling people if you have a, a drug abuse problem and you're homeless, then you will get priority for housing, uh, for permanent housing. Now, that's exacerbated because the bureaucracy said that every sort of local homelessness group, these things called COCs, Uh, Continuums of Care should focus on uh, a sort of scoring system for anybody who's going to get housing. You should score who uh, has the most problems and therefore is most likely to get this permanent or free housing. And their scoring system, uh, both that recommended by the federal government and adopted by a bunch of these uh, local groups, explicitly says if you're abusing drugs, if you're selling drugs, if You've had an overdose. You get extra what they call points towards towards uh, this permanent housing. Uh, one I mentioned, uh, I believe in Massachusetts, said, well, you know, you get four points towards free housing if you're currently abusing drugs, but only one point if you're in recovery from drug abuse uh, or if you're getting some sort of treatment. But you get a bonus two points if you've had an overdose in the past 12 months. So, uh, again, this is just the most insane sort of incentive program you could imagine where you're explicitly telling people that the way to get into permanent housing is to have overdoses, to continually abuse drugs, to sell drugs, and as I also point out, sometimes just to, to commit crimes of violence. Some of these scoring systems uh, give extra points for uh, for harming someone, for being arrested, for going to jail, uh, for committing a felony, all of these sorts of things. So you're literally telling homeless people and rewarding explicitly uh, violence, drug abuse, criminal behavior, child abuse. Sometimes, if you're uh, if you're a homeless mother and you've uh, lost a kid to child services, that actually gets you bonus points in some places for free housing. All of this is rewarding and encouraging the very worst sort of behavior. And I can't imagine anything more disheartening and discouraging for homeless individuals than to tell them. Well, the way to get your life uh, moving ahead again is to start abusing drugs, committing crimes, and neglecting your children. But this is exactly what the federal government is doing right now.
0: And the the philosophy of harm reduction sort of works in tandem with this, right?
1: Exactly. So one, the the housing first model, if I, if I didn't make clear, the idea behind it also kind of created usually is, is a form of what's called permanent supportive housing, PSH is that you don't want to push anybody to housing programs. And so the idea is that you have what they need. You need what they call low barriers to entry. That means no requirements for treatment, no requirements for mental health checkups, no sobriety, no anything. No, uh, as the federal government even says, no goal setting of any sorts. Uh, uh, And the idea with this is, well, we know a lot of people on the streets, uh, those unsheltered, according to some measures, about 75% have a severe substance use issue. Uh, have these these problems, but we don't want we want to get them in housing first, and then help them engage with these harm reduction programs, and hopefully that will reduce the the negative effects of drug abuse over time. Now, one beyond the the obvious problems of of finding the most uh, according to their own scoring systems drug addicted and uh, uh, violent individuals, and giving them free or heavily subsidized housing, uh, and then not requiring any treatment whatsoever for that. Some of the the harm reduction programs they're funding go even further, which this is needle exchange programs, programs that give out uh, glass pipes for methamphetamine smoking, uh, uh, foil and cookers for heroin and so forth. Uh, A lot of these programs, uh, originally funded mainly by city governments, but recently in the the Stimulus Act, uh, funded by uh, 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 new federal funds are providing all of these things to to homeless individuals and as i point out in the piece this 30 million dollars in the stimulus act for harm reduction which uh promises smoking kits uh, and supplies for methamphetamine uh, crack and and heroin abusers uh, and which is explicitly directed at minority communities for some reason seems to actually kind of instantiate that old conspiracy theory about the government encouraging crack or drug use among inner-city communities. They literally, right now, the, the, the stated policy and stated law is that we need to hand out uh, crack pipes, uh, methamphetamine pipes, and so forth to, quote, disadvantaged communities in the inner city, which, again, is, is just the most discouraging thing one can imagine for people trying to get their, get their lives out and move off drugs. Uh, as I also point out, Many of these harm reduction programs, such as uh, one that uh, a, a researcher cataloged in the Bronx uh, for an academic paper, uh, give out things like peer support payments. So they pay current drug addicts to sort of mentor other drug addicts, although what those drug addicts could tell another addict besides where to score isn't, isn't very clear. Uh, they give them Metro cards, uh, backpacks, clothing, and so forth to, quote, attract clients uh from other programs that are also trying to get people into their harm reduction because a lot of these programs are awarded government funds based on the number of quote clients they serve and so there's a sort of race to the bottom where they're how much more money funds uh direct payments in the case of those peer support providers uh metro cards and so forth can you give to someone abusing drugs again the the worst possible incentive you can imagine and all of that, I think, has a lot to do with just the incredible surge in, in homeless deaths, especially because of overdoses we've seen over the past ten years, but especially since the pandemic.
0: Well, that's uh, it's it's very discouraging, and I I, I do uh, uh, turn you know readers to to the great story. It's called "Subsidizing Addiction." It's it's in our um, summer issue. It'll be available on uh, the web soon. It's uh, it's it's disturbing stuff. Um, I wonder if we could just shift gears a little bit and look at the the kind of uh, big picture political economy questions that are being debated on the right right now. Uh, you know, GOP legislators were pretty divided on the Chips and Science Act, which I mentioned at the outset and which you've written on uh, earlier in the year for us. So proponents see it as a kind of means to shore up uh, American manufacturing, withdraw a vital industry from dependence on international supply chains. Now, this reflects um, a, a kind of shift on the right, recent advocacy on the right for a more energetic government role in the economy more broadly. Uh, that position, in turn, is, has generated a pushback on the right from others who see it as a, as a kind of uh, new form of statism. So I, I wonder you know, looking at that big picture question, what do you make of the debate about the role of so-called free market fundamentalism in the Republican platform? Uh, You know, is is government intervention really the best way for the U.S. to position itself for domestic prosperity and global competitiveness?
1: Well, the free market is undoubtedly the best way uh, for the U.S. to continue to gain competitiveness and to continue to uh, uh, best its uh, its geopolitical rivals uh, in the economic sphere. It's the reason why we are, by most measures, the, the mo- most wealthy and successful economy on earth, uh, obviously. Now, even the most ardent free market economists would agree that there's a, a place for government intervention when national security is involved. As I point out, even Adam Smith defended uh, laws like the Navigation Acts, which, uh, supported uh, domestic ship manufacturing for England because he thought it was necessary for for its rivalry with Europe. Now, does the CHIPS Act fall into more of the, the, the category of just sort of falsely attempting to bolster U.S. Uh, competitiveness and economic resources by getting the government involved? Or is it a true national security investment? Now, I think most people today would agree that semiconductors specifically for national security purposes and for essential industries might be something that warrants government intervention or support. But the strange thing is right now with the CHIPS Act, it includes a lot of support that doesn't seem to be directed just at those necessary sort of national security industries. It sort of a broad brush support to sort of any chips that can imagine, automobiles, even gaming chips could hypothetically get uh, subsidies under this act. And the other thing is that if this was such a national security issue, you would expect the CHIPS Act would include things like prevailing wage requirements that basically require the the chip manufacturers getting these grants to hire union workers. If we're very worried about increasing our chip manufacturing capacity, we wouldn't want to make it more expensive to manufacture chips, but that's exactly what the CHIPS Act does. Uh, or they wouldn't require more what they call uh, diversity inclusion initiatives as part of these grants they give out. Again, if we're in this sort of struggle for existence with with Chinese uh, communism, the last thing you'd want is to give out national security grants dependent on uh, outreach to disadvantaged communities as part of your semiconductor construction. But again, that's exactly what the CHIPS Act does. So obviously, there's a room for some amount of national security support there for necessary Products, semiconductors, all the way up to the most obvious, like tanks and, and airplanes and so forth. Uh, but a lot of what you saw in this bill is is the exactly the sort of reason why you don't want the government micromanaging the economy, because it tends to lard up a lot of unnecessary and politicized requirements into even the most justifiable sort of subsidies. And you definitely see that in the CHIPS Act.
0: Well, thank you. Um, don't forget to check out Judge Glock's work on the City Journal website www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. Uh, You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at Journal underscore mi. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, Judge Glock, always great to talk with you, and uh, thank you very much for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Brian.